Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 58, Defeat from the Jaws of Victory. Last time, the combination of the two differing views of the true boundary between Outer Mongolia and Manchuria and the new border policy of the Manchukuo Army resulted in Japanese bombers flying over the Halha River, that is, over the undisputed Mongolian side of the waterway to the west, to bomb the local Mongolian forces at one of their outposts on May 15, 1939. This had been in response to local Mongol forces crossing the Haha River, just as they had been doing for decades. But now the Japanese forces had a new border policy, and they were tired of Tokyo stopping them from defending their territory. No more. Still, the NPR, or forces of the Mongol People's Republic, had been driven back. So, the next day, May 16th, the Manchu Kuon forces were recalled back to Halar, to the east. But on the Mongolian side of the river, following protocol, the local MPR officers contacted the closest Soviet garrison, home of the 57th Corps, that had been stationed there since 1936. At first, there was no reaction or movement of Soviet troops, because the two senior officers, Corps Commander Feklenko and his Chief of Staff Khrushchev, were away from the base for personal reasons. So the Soviet high command did not learn of the incident until they read about it in the newspapers. This, as one can imagine, caused consternation in Moscow, which then called for orders being yelled at the two senior officers to return to their post and assess the situation. The assessing was done post-haste, and then a force was sent out consisting of one battalion of the 149th Infantry Regiment of the 36th Infantry Division, plus light armor and motorized artillery from the 11th Tank Brigade, to a staging area about 80 miles west of the Halha River. This force was put under the command of Major A.E. Boykoff, who was ordered to support the 6th Mongolian Cavalry Division, actually at the scene. After Boykoff and the 6th Cavalry Commander flew over the river, they saw for themselves that the Japanese forces were gone. Still, the two forces stationed themselves just to the west of the Haha River, while sending a small detachment of the 6th Mongolian Cavalry Division back across the river. Clearly, they were sending a signal to the Japanese, and that signal was received. As the NPR detachment was discovered on the east side of the river, the Japanese officials sent Manchukuoan forces back into the area to push the invaders to their side of the river. Clashes started around May 17th and grew from there, as each side was determined to win this latest episode. But neither wanted to enlarge it. Both sides had orders from on high to keep it local. But Komatsubara, the 23rd Divisional Commander, had decided on something besides the normal, the sending in of men until victory was claimed. Instead, he would bring in overwhelming forces, approach from a direction not expected, and wipe out the enemy. They would learn their lesson, and both sides could get back to the vigilant defensive posture they were used to. This decision was both in accord with and violated his standing orders. 
The area would be defended, but at the same time risked a stronger response from the Mongol and or the Soviets. But Komatsubara believed he had an ace up his sleeve. The political and diplomatic situation between Germany and Poland was escalating. Surely the Russians would be watching this as a showdown seemed inevitable. The Russians would not desire a problem here in the East when there was one developing in the West. But in contrast to this perceived advantage, there were several glowing drawbacks to the combat fitness of the nearby Japanese. Of the entire Kwangtun Army, the 23rd Division responsible for this area was the greenest unit operating. Their officers had no real combat experience, little intelligence experience, and had not had the time to properly train for several reasons. Moreover, the 23rd's main base, Halar, was some 200 miles away from Nomahan, and it was still under construction. So most of their men were based elsewhere, further away. But their greatest weakness was, as the area between Halar and Nomahan was mostly open and flat, and thus tank country, the 23rd only had a few light tanks. Which more, those tanks were thin-skinned, and machine guns were their main weapons. And as the ground between their main base and the soon-to-be fighting area had no complete railings or paved roads, the infantry would have to cover most of their trek, certainly the last 50 miles, by foot or truck, and there were too few of those. To overcome this, Komatsubara would indeed need stealth to bring his forces together and deploy them in overwhelming numbers as his plan directed. The reason the 23rd did not have what it needed for their specific terrain was they were last in line to receive supplies and weapons. Indeed, the Japanese army had gone from 17 divisions to 33 in the last two years, and so the men of the 23rd, mostly reservists called up, were not trained completely and certainly not equipped for anything major. But all this was to be overcome by the hardy stock of the Kyushu men from the most southern island of Japan's four main islands. Their warriorness would negate their guns, which dated back to 1907. Their lack of high-velocity, low-trajectory howitzers, the very tank killers needed if the Russians came into this and brought their armor to the fight. To combat these, the men of the 23rd would be using demolition charges and glasses filled, literally, with gasoline that would be set alight before hand-thrown at the enemy tanks. Of course, the Soviets had their deficiencies as well, considering the location of the coming battle. First off, the nearest Soviet rail line to the Haha River was some 400 miles away at Bortza. The last part of any journey the Soviet forces had to make would be over dirt or non-existent roads. Furthermore, the area was open and flat, suitable to air attacks from above. In comparison, again, Halar, the major Japanese military complex, was only 200 miles from Nomahan, and a rail line ran to it within 50 miles. The railhead there was connected to Nomahan, by three decent dirt roads. Not perfect, but certainly superior to the Soviet logistical nightmare. This was another advantage for Komatsubara, 
who included it in his report and request to attack the border violators. Knowing his request to attack would be approved, Komatsubara began a detailed reconnaissance. It was then that he discovered a Soviet infantry battalion and several tanks at Tamsag Bulak, about 80 miles west of Hala River. This was incorporated into his developing battle plan to make sure this force, if it came any closer, and he assumed it would, would be completely wiped out. Clearly, Lieutenant Azuma's reconnaissance force, the unit that had just pushed back the enemy and then left the area, would not suffice. So, he added to Azuma's mounted cavalry and light motorized units 220 infantrymen, 12 trucks, a tankette, four companies of the 3rd Battalion, 64th Regiment, all told about 800 men, a regimental gun company, three 75mm mountain guns, and four rapid-fire 37mm guns, and three truck companies. What's more, Colonel Yamagata, chosen to command the strike force, would also have 450 Manchukuoan troops. This total force, named the Yamagata Detachment, held about 2,000 men total. Their attack would begin on May 22nd, and their orders were clear to kill all enemy troops who were found east of the Halha River. But before May 22nd came, General Komatsubara heard from Kwangtung headquarters. He was only to attack in force if the bulk of the MPR forces crossed the river, and even if they built up forces along the river, as long as they were on the western side, he was not to attack. Furthermore, he was to do nothing to escalate the fighting if it came. Komatsubara was beside himself with indignant anger. He informed Kwangtung headquarters that he had already issued his orders to Yamagata. How would it look if he rescinded those orders? It was a humiliation not to be borne. Still, out of respect for his superiors, he would delay the attack for a few days. The date of his attack was pushed to May 27th, or possibly the 28th. One can only imagine what it was like for Kwangtung headquarters to be taking their own medicine in regards to orders they ignored from the general staff of the army. This was not a suggestion from them, but it was being treated as such. Here was another flagrant example of Geiko Kujo, or ruling from below. As the men of the Soviet 57th Corps had been ordered to remain on the western side of Halha, unless the NPR forces came across something they couldn't handle, Soviet air patrols were sent out over the river to investigate. Yet, as these inexperienced pilots were flying obsolete I-15 biplanes, they were easy targets for the Manchukuoan guns. At least seven, but probably double that amount, were shot down. The air reconnaissance was stopped, which accounts for the total surprise the Japanese forces were able to secure. Although Yamagata was bringing his forces together at Kamchur Miao, about 40 miles north of Nomaha, he had sent south a souped-up reconnaissance force in between the town and the river. What he found was that the Soviets were building a strong bridge across the Halha in a southwesterly direction from Nomaha. Also at that location, where the Holstein River feeds into the Haha River from the east, 
There were two groups of MPR Soviet forces, about 200 men each, on each side of the Holston River. A tactically sound disposition of men for defensive purposes. But what really got his attention was a small force of MPR men only one mile west of Nomaham itself. Obviously, they were the lookout, or decoy force, to alert those behind him of any coming attack. Yamagata decided to turn this rather straightforward defensive plan of the Soviets on its head. Taking his Azuma reconnaissance unit, he would have them head south, but just on their side, or the eastern side, of the Haha River, and make for the Soviet bridge under construction. Then he would use the four infantry companies and the Manchu Kuowin units with artillery and attack from the west to drive all before them back to the river. But instead of crossing the bridge to safety, the enemy would run into the Azuma unit waiting for them. It would be a bloodbath, an annihilation, but one the enemy brought upon themselves by crossing into, supposedly, Manchu Kuowin territory. But Yamagata wanted to make sure there would be no further river crossings after this operation. So, to teach the Mongols a lesson, he also ordered the Azuma unit, after the fighting was done on the east side of the river, to quickly engage and destroy any forces just along the western side of the river. This had to come to an end. On May 28th, long before the sun rose, the Yamagata detachment set out from Kenshur Miao towards Nomahan. Not far into their journey, the 220-strong Azuma unit broke away and headed in a southwesterly direction towards the river and the bridge. But what Lieutenant Colonel Azuma did not know was that, at the bridge, were not simply Mongolian light cavalry, as had been before. By now, they had been joined by a Soviet infantry company armored cars, combat engineers, and a battery of self-propelled 76mm artillery. What's more, the Soviet Mongol forces got wind of Azuma's men coming their way, before Azuma even thought to send troops ahead to see if the situation had changed. But to balance things out, the Soviet-led forces at the bridge and surrounding areas did not know of the larger Japanese force being led south towards Nomaha. Meanwhile, the Soviet NPR defense position near Nomaham, that is, just to the west of the town, had changed as well. It was, in fact, now much larger. Set up in a defensive line running north to south was Major Boykov's infantry battalion, three motorized infantry companies, 16 BA-6 armored cars, and four 76mm self-propelled guns, and a reconnaissance platoon themselves having five armored cars, altogether some 1,000 men. But Boykov also had the 6th NPR Cavalry Division, another 1,250 men. This was broken into two cavalry regiments, an artillery unit, an armored car unit, and a company in training. And though Boykov had put the men in, again running north to south, on a 10-mile long line parallel with the Haha River, they were, again, about one mile west of Nomaha, as in one mile within their own supposed territory. But turning conventional military wisdom on its head, 
Boykov had the cavalry units in the center of his line, while having an infantry company each on the northern and southern ends. Looked at from his point of view, this was a line meant to repel any attack coming from the east, that is, from Halar. And finally, it's worth noting that Boykov held one infantry company, his combat engineers, and artillery in reserve, just on the west side of the Haha River. His belief was that, if something arose, his men could cross their bridge and make for the fighting, while his cavalry and infantry line held the enemy at bay. As Yamagata's main striking force approached Nomaham, it swung out, going a bit east, to hit the enemy directly from the west, thus playing into Boykov's hand. Furthermore, Yamagata seemed to outsmart himself when he had his larger force break into five groups. The plan was to hit the defensive line at the same time in five different locations, thus causing the entire line to collapse and then retreat west. But the attacking force did not reckon on the numbers of the defenders because they did not know about them, because they did not check. They also did not know about their heavy guns or armored cars. What's more, the Japanese communications would be dodgy at best, again the 23rd being near the end of the supply line, so any coordination would have to be the result of luck. Still, Yamagata's main force came on, hitting the enemy near Nomaham early in the morning of May 28th. As the Japanese infantry had run into the NPR cavalry, the horsemen gave ground. This caused the Soviet infantry on either end to retreat as well, in order not to be cut off from any support. Just behind the fighting, a Soviet colonel sent in his training company to strengthen the line. This had no effect as the company was overrun and many were killed. And then the colonel's headquarters was overrun and many of his staff including himself, were killed. The retreat became a rout. But as the Japanese forces moved further west, they came into the range of the Soviet large guns. The attackers were slowed down, but still on the move. And then, inexplicably, Yamagata, who had by now made a few mistakes, made his biggest one yet. He changed the objective of this day's attack. Instead of sending his men to the Soviet bridge, just above where the Holston and Halha rivers met, he turned them to a hill, a few miles east of the river, where the retreating Soviet troops had started to bunker down. His thinking was probably, the enemy is there, and it is there I will destroy them, which is well and good, but he failed to inform Azuma of the change in plans. His two forces were to meet there at the bridge and wipe out the enemy. Now they would be separated as the larger force would remain a few miles away from the river, away from the meeting place. This lack of coordination and bringing together of forces allowed the Soviet and MPR forces still east of the Halha River to regroup and dig in. Their men now relatively safe, the large Soviet guns opened up and stopped the Japanese advance, itself now forced to halt and dig in, during the late morning. During these events, Azuma and his men continued heading southwest, not knowing of any of this, as their radios were not functioning. So as they approached the bridge, 
now at least two miles from their comrades, because they had stopped. The Soviet local commander guarding the bridge moved his battery of self-propelled 76mm guns to the east of the Halha River. He was going to make sure the bridge remained in Soviet hands. And the large guns opened up. As Azuma had no artillery of his own, nor any anti-tank weapons, he then had to hunker down as well. But as it was, he was now in between two enemy forces, one just to the east of the river and one further in, but in between two Japanese forces. As their radios still allowed no contact, Azuma sent runners to Yamagata, who informed him of the morning's events. Ironically, Azuma and his men probably could have escaped, as they were on horseback, but the colonel had been ordered to make for the bridge, and thus cut off any retreat, and he kept to his mission. But if anyone should have been retreating, it was him and his. As the midday wore on, Azuma's position was shelled from the west, and attacked by infantry and cavalry from the east. Yamagata was unable to do anything to help, his men being pinned down by the shelling. Yet Yamagata did try to send Azuma's men ammunition, but each time the convoy was destroyed. That night, the direct attacks on the trapped Japanese soldiers lessened, but not the shelling, and Azuma had no intention of even trying to escape. He still believed it was his job to stop any retreating forces that came his way. Besides, had he made it out safely, the colonel probably would have been killed for advancing in the wrong direction. As the sun came up on May 29th, the Soviets began their artillery assault again. But during the night, reinforcements had arrived. So the shelling was even more intense than the day before. The land Azuma controlled continued to shrink as his few remaining trucks or cars were hit by shells, exploding the remains a fiery mess. The wounded men placed inside those vehicles for protection were gone as well. Past noon, the Soviets moved in to within 50 yards of the Japanese defensive line. More and more Japanese soldiers were killed as they tried to hold the line. By the afternoon, Azuma had about 24 men who could still stand. So the colonel led them in a bonsai charge, which accomplished nothing. The men were killed within seconds of standing up. That night, four men, the only unwounded survivors, escaped the trap to join Yamagata's forces. A sterilized version of all this was reported to Komatsubara, who then sent in reinforcements. But they didn't arrive until the day of May 29th, after Azuma's forces had been wiped out. Even then, the Japanese weren't strong enough to expel the Soviet Mongol forces. Instead, they spent the next three nights sneaking into Azuma's former camp to recover as many bodies as possible. Within 72 hours, some 200 bodies had been collected. As the Soviets could not be pushed out, General Komatsubara ordered Yamagata's forces back north. No sense in escalating the conflict when he was already unable to deal with the current enemy forces. However, as strange as this may sound, as the Japanese forces were looking for the bodies of their comrades, the Soviets took this for a renewed night attack, so pulled out themselves, 
behind the Haha River. Only by the 3rd of June did the Soviets realize that the Japanese were gone for good, and so they recrossed the river to take up their positions again, east of the river. Prudence called for the Japanese to investigate the reasons for their loss, and it came down to the basics of military action, communication, reconnaissance, and appropriate weaponry. These would all have to be fixed if there was to be a future engagement. Ironically, the Soviet press did not report on their success until near the end of June, whereas the Kwangtung headquarters simply lied to Tokyo, saying the invaders had been chastised and we will keep an eye on them. By the way, we are requesting large amounts of river-crossing material and crafts to be sent to us as soon as possible. 